week's guest on The Skin We Are In is Nikki Ciccatelli-Stewart, Chief Engagement Officer at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Nikki believes that being successful isn't about your individual success, it's about ensuring the success of those around you. It is about paying it forward. It's about looking at the person who's behind you coming up next in line and helping them get where they need to go. But it really is about being more connected than you could possibly be on your own. This is The Skin We Are In, and I'm Jennifer Dean. The Skin We Are In is a website and podcast dedicated to telling women's stories with the goal of revealing how women both define and embody what it means to be a woman today. My guest, Nikki Ciccatelli-Stewart, is the Chief Engagement Officer at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Arkansas. Nikki's role at Crystal Bridges is to direct the vision, strategic design, development, and supervision of the engagement division which includes the departments of education, interpretation, exhibitions, and new project development. She works closely with the museum's founder and senior staff to create programs that highlight women's roles in the art. Nikki's position at Crystal Bridges challenges traditional ideas of power in the art world and is helping to pave the way for other women in art museums. Nikki, welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you today. It's so exciting to be here. I'm honored. Well, thank you. So my first question is, when did your passion for the arts begin? Do you remember what kind of the inception was? I remember always being interested in the arts, being uh, visual, being performing arts. All of the arts were always interesting to me, always uh, drawing and especially cartoons and animation early on. They, they were my primary interests. In school, I was active in bands, so I played instruments. I was active in theater, um, singing and performing. So the arts have always sort of surrounded me, and everybody in our family was, was artistic or seemed to be talented in some way. So it was a, a family where that was encouraged. Uh, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I made a career of it. Um, my parents were very supportive, and and some things I did better than others. So I pursued those <laughs> a little longer than some things I didn't, uh, I didn't take all the way through to adulthood, but it was always there. Are you a practicing artist today? I am. It's, it's a difficult balance sometimes to be a practicing artist as well as have a full-time job that really does take a lot of attention and passion not even time, really, energy is, is the thing that the work takes. Um, being a practicing artist is something I have to make time for, and I do still do that, but I do it differently than I did when I was, say, in college. Um, my major in college was illustration, so I focused on studio art then, not quite knowing where the path would lead me, so I always have that foundation to go back to. Um, I would say my most voluminous body of work is my journals. Um, whenever I travel, which is often, or go on vacations, I make these visual journals of the experience that are part writing and part drawing. It's portable, it's immediate, it's something I can do when I have a little time off, but I also like to keep the practice going when I'm at home on a daily or weekly basis. So you find ways and you find what you want to say and you bring them together and uh, it all 
seems to work out okay. I would love to do more. I think most people in our um, professional world would love to do more of whatever it is that they're passionate about. For me, it's, it's drawing. It'll always be drawing and painting for me. But there's always time if you make it, and I try to make it a priority. I'm thinking about this kind of evolution of how your art has changed over time. And you said you've moved into journaling as being part of your practice. How do you think that part of your practice influences your work today? Some of the work that I do is relatively um, straightforward, as in the management of what happens at the museum and the day-to-day work. A lot of the work I am very privileged to do, though, is more on a strategic level and a big picture thinking not about today or this week, but about next year or a few years down the road. The ability to create a picture of that and define something that doesn't exist yet is something that I think the journal writing practice has really helped me to do. Because in many ways, it is a reflective practice, even if I'm doing it in the moment, but it is a way of capturing a big story on maybe just one or two pages. Mm -hmm. So summarizing is something that I think the arts often teach students at every age, even me as an informal learner of the arts still at this age. Um, So the, the idea of taking big picture and creating an image of it for others, whether that's with words or with pictures or ideas, is uh, it's a tangible skill that I have to use all the time. I think my journaling prepares me for that work. I think it keeps my hand in the practice of summarizing something big, like a trip to Alaska on just a few pages. The reverse is true, too. It also helps you drill down to the details and paint a picture for someone who wasn't there. So I would imagine that they're, they're connected in many ways. I like the idea of painting a picture for someone else. I also journal and write, and typically it's a mixture of text and pictures. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that helps me to articulate my ideas. If I'm able to expand those on paper, then I'm usually able to go talk about them or to put them into action in some sort of way. Yes, I think that's true. I also think you remember them better that way. I think the act of drawing what happened or... um, there's lots of terms for it. Visual journaling is a pretty widely used term, or sketch noting is another term. By drawing things, whether it's a little icon or an expansive drawing that takes two pages, you are, in many cases, really looking at something when you're drawing, and therefore you're remembering it. It's, it's burned in there. When I sit and look at a landscape that I want to capture, I'm remembering it in a way that I wouldn't if I sat down to draw it. Additionally, that combination of drawing pictures as well as using words fully engages both sides of your brain and it really does leave an imprint. I remember these vacations that I have journaled so vividly and I don't think it's because of the photographs I mm. took. I rarely go back and scroll through my my photographs on my computer and look at them. Every now and again I'll pull out a few pictures that I love but I don't look at the pictures very much. However, I vividly remember the experiences and I do think that the journaling has a lot to do with that. Do you think that your original interest in art really helped to form you know, your path and, and leading to Crystal Bridges? Do you think it was a a conscious decision to move you in this direction or just one of those things that you were 
passionate about art and this is kind of where you ended up? I've actually been thinking about this quite a bit lately, this idea of the pathway from where you start to where you are. Mm -hmm. Because my son, who is 19, who is now starting his second year of college, was going through this process not long ago of trying to figure out which major to choose and which classes and having a fair amount of, of struggle over making the right choices. And in talking about it with him, I kept saying, why are you so worried about making the wrong choice? And he said, Basically, I don't want to make a choice now that will affect me later or keep me in school longer because I didn't take a particular class, so now I have to do an extra year, or somehow I, I missed a step. That was the, the key. He was concerned about missing a step, which I understand. Certainly with certain careers, you may have to map out quite a path for yourself, depending on whether you need a bachelor's degree or a master's or even a doctorate past that. And I wanted to say, trust that it'll happen. Whatever it is will happen without worrying too much about what classes to pick. But that doesn't have quite a lot of weight to someone who's stressing over a decision. And we talked about it over and over. And I finally realized that the moment that it made sense was when I shared that when I first started thinking about going to college, when I was in high school, there was no Crystal Bridges. I couldn't have made a path here if I wanted to. It didn't exist. The idea for it did not yet exist. And so perhaps, and I really do believe this, perhaps the world has bigger, better things for you that are waiting than you possibly could know. I feel that's very true for a lot of people. Sometimes you make a path and you follow it and it takes you to somewhere unexpected but still mostly on your path. I could never have planned this. And I think once my son realized that was true, then he began to understand a little bit more about his own path and that he could start out and it can always change. It doesn't have to be one way or another. Whatever his path is, that's what his path will be. And so rolling back and thinking about mine, which started with going to art school and pursuing a studio degree, the, the goal was I'm going to be a Disney animator, period, end of thought. That was it. That was all there was in my head. And I was very determined. And I did very well. I ended up working for Disney for a while. But animation wasn't the thing that I really wanted to do after all. And when I got that far and realized that animation wasn't my thing, then I felt a little bit lost. Like I wasn't sure what to do next. I was very fortunate to have people that I worked with, uh, supervisors and colleagues, who essentially kind of pulled me to the side and said, Nikki... Disney is the largest employer of artists in the world. I'm pretty <laughs> sure there's going to be another place for you. And then I could breathe again. And I realized, okay, so I don't have to know where the path is leading. I just have to keep going and it'll work itself out. And I may have to work really hard and I may get a little lost, but I will get wherever I'm supposed to be. And so I just kept going and ended up having many different jobs throughout the Disney company that were all truly exciting, none of which I had planned, none of which did I even know existed, to be honest. And it just reminds me and hopefully reminds my son that you don't know what you don't know. And the world is filled with things that you can't even dream about yet because you just don't know they exist. So a fair amount of, of faith and trust that forward motion is good and an idea of where you'd like to go and how you want to spend your time 
what kind of impact you want to make on the world can be all you need. You don't have to know where it will end. I think that's an extremely valuable lesson, especially for teenagers um, and people in their, in their 20s, because there's this idea that we, we should figure out exactly who we want to be. And looking back, if it wasn't for an existential crisis, I wouldn't be where I am today, or a multitude of little crises, you know, Mm -hmm. that make you reevaluate, well, what do I really want to do? And what I'm currently doing, or this idea of what I had about what my life should be like, is that really what I want? And at times, it'll be easier to identify what you don't want to do. There will be moments where you will be given an opportunity and you'll say, you know what, that is not me after all. I've had some of those. There are jobs that I have taken that felt like they might be a little off the path for me, whatever path I was on, but they were worth a try. And I wanted to see, why am I so interested in this? Is there something there? I should try this. And I did, and it just didn't work out. Um, So after a few months, I got back on my path and found a new direction and kept going. But, you know, they're just pit stops on the, the journey. They're not ending points. And, and I think that's the real, for me, that's the real lesson, which is I don't think about ending points. Where I am now is not an ending point because every day I come and, and walk through the doors of this beautiful museum and there's something new to do. It's not an end. It's, it's just part of the path. So the act of walking the path and trusting that you can keep going for me, is stronger than anything else. And realizing that you don't know how cool the world is about to get and what great thing is out there waiting for you because you don't know what you don't know. Do you think that also sometimes we see things as as disparate parts, things that, you know, at initial glance don't seem like they fit together, and then in hindsight we can see kind of how they do all fit together, like these little puzzle pieces that help us along our pathway? Yes. I also think that in the moment when those disparate things are happening, you may think you're learning one thing, but you're really (laughs) getting something else. Absolutely. (laughs) And so here's my uh, favorite example of that. While working for uh, the Walt Disney Company, I worked at Walt Disney World, and I was very lucky to work on entertainment costuming crews that took care of the shows and the parades in the Magic Kingdom. I worked on the Spectra Magic Parade, so I basically helped all the characters get into their gear that lights up all night for the parade. And before the parade, we would walk the parade line. And I did this for the daytime parade as well. And I was walking the parade line one day, my very first week, this happened to me two or three times before I realized what was going on. And someone asked me, can you tell me what time is the three o'clock parade? (laughs) And I thought, yeah, three (laughs) o'clock. Um, And you know that because you just said it. So then the question was, what are you really asking me? And it only took a few days for me to realize that what they were saying to me was, excuse me, I have been sitting here on the curb in the hot Florida sun holding a seat for my children who now that the parade should be here already want to get up and go get ice cream and use the restroom. So can you please tell me what time the parade will get here? Because I don't want to lose my seat, but I want to have fun with my kids. (laughs) They didn't know to say all of that. They knew what time is the three o'clock parade. And so understanding what they were really asking me was what I learned in that job. And therefore, I could answer it in a way that exceeded their expectation. 
that still happens now, today. It happens in museums all the time. Um, I am often asked what the cost of a painting is. And it's not because someone wants to buy it. It's because they're searching for a way to assign value to what they're looking at. And this is one way they know how to do it. You can ascribe a monetary value to something and it tells you something else about it besides what you can see. So when people ask me how much was that picture, they're trying to figure out what it's worth, not what it costs. So my conversation with them doesn't necessarily come from a place of, we're shopping, can you tell us what that cost? It comes from a place of, perhaps, I'm new at this, and I'm trying to understand the value of this work of art. Can you talk to me about that? Can you help me get there? And the answer is always, of course I can help you get there, let's talk about it. And what makes it so important and why it's here? Because everything is here for a reason. The answer to their question often doesn't even involve a number. We don't really talk about monetary value of works in the collection because their value isn't just based in that. It's based in many other things. So, so I'm still being asked effectively what time is the three o'clock parade many, many years after no longer working on the parade route. I didn't know that's what I was learning back then. I just knew these people needed information and their their vacation that they have been saving for for years is happening right now and it, they want it to be perfect and they're feeling a little frustrated and hot and if there's something I can do to help them with that I should that's still happening to all of us we all want to feel a little more comfortable and in the work we do in museums that's a huge part of the success of a visit so it's amazing the things that you can look back on and pull from as you get out of bed every morning. I think you hit on something that's extremely vital in museums is being able to tell a story mm. and being able to communicate a story with the patrons that come into the museum because you're right. They don't necessarily just want you to quantify something for them. They want you to fill in the gaps and tell that story to form a narrative so they can begin to really understand about the artist and about the piece and how these things fit together. So other than trying to tell, or perhaps as part of trying to tell a story every day, can you tell us a little bit more specifically about your role day-to-day -day in the museum? Sure. I think you're hitting it. It is really about the story we're telling. And the size and the scope of that story at any given moment is what changes. But the bottom line is, in a world filled with Google, what can I tell you about something that isn't already out on the internet for you to discover on your own? Mm -hmm. that's, that's part of what museums look at um, as, as an offering, if you will. And there are many... I'll call them layers of meaning to each thing, whether it is an artwork or it's the building and the architecture of this place or something you find out on the trails. There's, there's many layers of meaning to explore. And depending on who you are in that moment, how many layers are you interested in going through? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand what people are looking for when they walk in the door, why they're here, what the purpose of their visit is, and help deliver whatever it is they're searching for that day. Sometimes it isn't about content at all. Sometimes it's about lunch and meeting old friends and walking the trail with their dog in the morning. It doesn't always have to be about 
really detailed, involved learning. But many times it can be. I, I don't yet think anyone uh, that I've met goes to a museum thinking, I sure hope I don't learn something today. <laughs> I, think, I think we all go knowing that we may discover something we didn't know. But it's a different kind of experience than, say, going to a coffee shop with friends. There is a layer of new uh, discovery, new experience that's possible in the museum. And there's an external factor that you can bring into your visit or not, be it art or architecture or nature. So my job is to understand that people are looking for something different, each of them, as they walk through this place, and try to find the best ways to meet their needs, which is a difficult task and takes a whole lot of help from a lot of people. Um, namely, there's got to be a deep understanding of who's coming through the door and what they need from that visit. And we are engaged in continuously uh, trying to gather that information through surveys, through conversations, and through observation. Uh, we're, we're understanding better why people are visiting. And this is a very good time for us to take a deep dive into that because we're now just about five years into being out there in the world. And at the beginning, I think there were a lot of people who wanted to see this beautiful place that they had heard about, but they weren't ready yet to go deeper because it was just their first visit, maybe. They might be architecture-minded um, folks, and they might have heard that Moshe Softy was our architect for the building, and that's why they're visiting. They might really be on a bucket list moment because it's a bucket list kind of place. It's an extraordinary place. We're now five years in, and our local community is deeply engaged and visits often, multiple times a year, because they want more. They want to learn more. They want to see more. They want to be part of this place. So as chief engagement officer, I'm always looking for ways to engage the people who are walking in the door in a content-rich way. So I guess I'm, I'm sort of in charge of people and their learning. Not necessarily general information. So uh, not what time are we open uh, until today or what time does the cafe close? That's, that's a different department's work and the communication of that information is, is a huge task. And that's another team that does that. Most of what I'm looking at is information about the art, architecture, and nature. And you see it manifest itself through the work of the teams in the exhibitions and interpretation departments as well as in the education department. What it looks like on paper is more than, well, it, it's substantial. It's 700 plus programs and tours each year for the public and for teachers and students. It's um, hundreds and hundreds of labels and brochures and audio guides. It's content that's written by several different people and placed on the internet or in publications. All of that work that's being done has a, a way of touching the guest experience. And so part of what I do is try to find, during your visit here on site, the best way to reach people on their terms, because that's where it has to start. It starts with them. Whoever you are and whatever you know when you walk in the door is enough. That's where you start. And our job is to figure out what it is you need today. So we try to do that in a lot of different ways through comfort, through conversation, through big events and special moments and parties and lectures. And sometimes we simply do it by chatting and spending time talking to you. It's incredibly rewarding because 
it gives you the opportunity to really start to understand what people hope for and dream about for themselves. And we're part of that. It's, it's a very hopeful and, and forward-thinking kind of role. And I, I love the work. I also have the very fortunate responsibility of each time something new is proposed as a, a project, big or small, it's my job to look at it through the lens of the guest experience and decide, is that something that belongs here? Does it fit with our mission? Is there something to learn? Is it really right for us from the guest experience and learning piece? And so my example for that will be, we recently opened the Bachman Wilson House, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. And it's a home from the 1940s that was in New Jersey. And we brought the house here to Crystal Bridges because it was threatened in its original location. Floodwaters had saturated the house seven times and the, the owners were concerned about it being ruined permanently. They wanted to bring it someplace like Crystal Bridges where the public could still visit it, um, but that they knew it would be safer. So when that came up as an opportunity, there was a group of us that looked at that opportunity from many different angles before deciding whether or not we would do it. And the angle that I was able to look at it through was, how does this help us tell the story of American architecture? And how will you experience this house? Because it's quite small and it's a private home right now and we're talking about making it into a public place. So the analysis of what the guest experience would be like in the home and what we might offer over time was my work on that. Other people looked at sustainability and cost and whether or not we could in fact keep it from ever flooding again. And all of the people that did that research, all of the group of us came back to the table and said, here's my recommendation, yes or no. Thankfully, everybody said yes. It seemed like a really easy decision to make, honestly. It was very connected to our mission. But because we did the due diligence from every perspective, both institutional and the guest, we knew that we were making the right choice and that we could move forward knowing that it fit beautifully within the Crystal Bridge's mission and vision. So as these new projects come along, I get to evaluate them at that level, and I get to think long past my tenure here at Crystal Bridges. And 100 years from now, how will that house look and how will we continue to take care of it? Those are sort of the dreams that we get to think about with these newer ideas, whether they're tiny or big, like bringing a house to the museum. You talked about kind of this evolution of engagement at the museum and how engagement was so different in the beginning than it yeah. is now, I think on multiple levels. And as you know, I mean, I have some familiarity with the early history of the museum. Of course. And from my recollection, in the beginning, the senior staff was composed primarily of men. However, as I understand it now, that isn't necessarily the case. It seems like there may have been a shift. So do you think there is an institutional culture at the museum that is especially supportive of women in leadership positions? There is definitely an institutional culture that supports women, <laughs> and it comes directly from our founder and our board chair, Alice Walton. She is the very definition of a strong woman and the inspiration for the tour of the same name that takes you to all the artworks that are created by women artists, uh, which is a, a hugely underrepresented group in 
art history in general, uh, and it's a strong part of our collection. She is very much the inspiration for that thinking, and and because of her not just strong leadership, but sound, wonderful leadership, taking us to a place of real success with what we've done here, it has never been a question that other women that are at the top of their field could be part of this group as well. Uh, you're right, at the very beginning of the museum's journey, the um, board chair, who was, was and is a woman, uh, and one deputy director were sort of the senior staff that represented women. We had three, maybe four men at that time fleshing out that group. Now, if you look at our strategy team, men are in the minority. We have, we have a, a really strong team filled with women. So there's now nine people at the senior staff level, ten if you include our board chair, and two of them are men, and the rest are women. So part of what's happening is, as a new institution, we are not perhaps uh, bound by old traditions. Mm -hmm. We're not stuck trying to make a change. I know that many museums that have been around for a long time, a hundred years even, they are um, probably struggling a little bit more with change because they have a lot of history behind them. It's much easier to turn a rowboat than a battleship, right? So if you've been around a long time, it takes a while for people's ideas to change, especially if you've had success. And the folks that work in a museum, museum staff members as a group, have typically looked pretty similar. They were mostly men and mostly white at that. That's still part of the case. There's far more women in the industry now. Here at Crystal Bridges, a lot more women in leadership than men. But we're also interested in moving the needle on the diversity issue and perhaps creating opportunities for those who are interested in museum careers that are not white to have an opportunity to intern or come in and learn what we do and be part of it and get some experience to then take them on to their careers, which we hope will be in museums. But it's, it's an issue that I think goes far beyond museums. Certainly lots of people are thinking about this right now. We want to represent, and I think this is true for most museums as well, we want to represent the people who are walking in our doors by having similar makeup in our staff and our volunteer groups. And I would go so far as to say in our partners and donors as well. And finding that balance of diverse culture that exists where you live. You'll see it walking through the doors of your museum or your school, wherever you work. If you can somehow balance the people working there with the people visiting there in terms of gender and race, then you really are creating a place that everyone feels welcome. And it's critically important to the work that we do here at Crystal Bridges and has become a renewed focus for us in this past year. So it, it goes beyond just women. It goes even further. And I hope we are able to make a real impact. It, you're absolutely right. I mean, the art world has traditionally been dominated by males, white males, um, mm -hmm. with an obvious glass ceiling for many diverse groups. So how do you think that women and other diverse groups can break through the ceiling and create new power structures in the art world? I think it's got a lot to do with creating a pipeline of opportunity for those who are coming 
up this way. Um, finding folks that want to be in my world here, say museum educators or work on exhibitions, finding folks that want to do that work um, is one thing. Finding ways to open it up to people who want to do that work that maybe didn't even know it was a possibility for them is an entirely different thing. And if we can open that up to more women and girls and to more diverse groups, then that leads us to creating a workforce that's highly qualified and interested and has been encouraged along the way by the work that we've been doing. It's a little bit like many of the initiatives that I know are happening in science education for girls. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, we see the same deficit there. And getting girls interested in science is an important thing to do. And we're starting that with elementary age girls. Getting them excited about science will help keep them from feeling like it's inaccessible to them once time comes to make a choice, right? That's true for what we're doing here too with museums, making sure that if you have an interest in art and connecting art with people and art with history and art with anything, that you know this is an option. This is something you could do. I certainly don't have a great um, story of I always wanted to work in a museum and now I do. My crooked path brought me here. But what if your crooked path could still be crooked just with more knowledge on it? Um, you don't have to go directly from high school to working in a museum uh, and all the steps in the middle working out to some divine plan. But you wouldn't even be able to try to plan that route if you didn't know it was possible for you. And if you didn't see people who look like you in the museum that you visit. So seeing our leadership, seeing people that make decisions every day, the people that lead tours, the folks that you meet, whether it's in the restaurant or the library or the museum store or in a program, if those people look like you in some way, then you're going to be excited about connecting with them. And a lot of, of people that come here tell us that. So, so I think that's what's important, putting out the world in front of them and saying, hey, anything's possible for you. What do you want to explore next is critically important. And I, I also think that it doesn't matter who you are. When you walk into a museum, especially an art museum, you're looking at what they have to offer. But at some level, you're just looking for yourself. You're looking for something you can connect to, a reflection of you on the wall or on the pedestal or whatever the art media might be. You're trying to find a way to connect. And those are the things that really become meaningful to us. I think if we can create opportunities for you to see yourself on the wall and meet yourself in the others that are around you, then it's a place that becomes important to you in a new way. And that's when you connect with it. That's, that's what happened to me with both science and museums. My first museum memory is I grew up in the Delaware Valley and I remember going to the Franklin Institute and running through the human heart. It was this <laughs> big life-size human heart you could run through the same way that blood flows through the different parts of your heart. And I, I did it hundreds of times as a kid. And I know that that has got to be part of why I'm so interested in museums or science or both. That's the stuff you don't know how it's affecting you in the moment. And you don't have to know. You just have to have the experience and tuck it away. And on a rainy day, you'll find it again. That makes me think of artists like Joan Mitchell, who, by the way, is one of my all-time favorite yes. artists. Yes. And I believe she was on, you had a tour at a time, Strong Women Tour, I believe mm -hmm. is what it was. Does that still exist? 
It does. And okay. she is still part of it. I love that. Well, thinking about Joan Mitchell and thinking about being a woman myself and my first introduction to artists like Mitchell, I think about the story that her work tells about women artists of the 20th century. Mm. How do you think that narrative has changed over time? And how are you working to tell that story of how women's roles as artists have changed over time? I think in many ways, we tell the story of women in the arts relative to men in the arts. And at the time that Joan Mitchell was working, the time you're speaking of, that was indeed the way people spoke about it. And she was told straight mm-hmm. out, if you were a man, I'd show your work. If you were a man or dead, I would show your work. <laughs> but you're a woman who's alive, so I can't. I mean, she heard that over and over. I think nowadays we get to tell the story of women in the arts relative to the world around them instead of just the men around them because their work is about the world around them, whether it's challenging the world around them or it's celebrating it. Maybe it's shining a light on one little piece of that world that you don't know about because you don't live in it, or it's celebrating a moment that all women can share. Um, I think we talk about artwork in general uh, in terms of the world that it was created in, in relative to the moment. And, and I wish we would do that more often. We as a field, a museum field, would do that more often with artwork of every time and place because everything was contemporary art once. It was all new stuff at some point. And if you can understand the world that existed around the making of that art, and the person who made it, and the circumstances that led to it, you will have another layer of understanding or layer of meaning that gives you what you want to know, perhaps, about the work. I, I think we do talk about opposites often on tours, on um, programs that we do in, in the galleries. Certainly, we write that way often in a lot of books that are published, both inside and outside the museum world. We do compare things. It's a very easy way to help people see a point, and it makes a great deal of sense to do that. But what I'm excited about is that we have started to start, um, we've started to compare women to the world around them rather than to the men around them exclusively and draw the differences there. The world that is happening and changing so quickly around us now is a totally exciting place to be and there are more women making work now than ever and i would even say uh more women making work about being women about what it is to be women Mm -hmm. and that's another distinction you know simply to say someone is a, a an artist that is a woman is one thing and to say that they are a feminist artist or they're dealing with women's issues is a different thing. Not all of them are, necessarily. Uh, The same is true for for black artists or Latino artists. Um, Your heritage and where you come from may be a part of your work, but it may not. It may just be a footnote on your label. (laughs) So figuring that part out is another layer of inquiry, a more thoughtful layer of inquiry that I think I see people engaging in in museums, certainly here and and other places, even more than I saw 10 years ago. In your role at Crystal Bridges, you have the opportunity to kind of shape this narrative for young people. Um, But you've also 
worked very closely. I know Crystal Bridges was just hosting the School for Art Leaders. Mm-hmm. And you've worked closely with the students in architecture studio classes at the University of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So how have these experiences allowed you to mentor and lead young women in the arts? I think it's critically important that a rising tide lift up all the boats, not just one. So the success we're having here at Crystal Bridges with bringing art to, to people who maybe otherwise would not have discovered it is a great start, but it's not nearly enough. We need to lift everybody up with us. Understanding that, really, (laughs) everybody wants something different out of the experience, I tend to look to students and to people that are younger as the next generation of folks that are going to carry this on when I'm long gone. And working with the architecture students, working with teachers who are uh, art teachers that want to become leaders in their school, that's one way of doing it and it's also a way of connecting us together into what I think most communities really have which is a cultural ecosystem that goes beyond just the school or just the museum it's it's mm-hmm. a it's a network of people that are together affecting each other's lives no matter how big or small your city is Bentonville is a relatively small town even though it's growing in leaps and bounds and you kind of know everybody and there's a comfort level with lots of people here but but even in a big city even in New York City or Chicago or someplace where you don't know everybody there's a network of cultural assets that are available to all of us and I feel like when you connect with an architecture school and teachers and then other groups that we've connected with here that are completely disparate from those things what you're doing is reaching out and touching the lives of as many different people and groups as you can and creating a stronger network. A, a cultural ecosystem is the best way I know to say it. When young people see that, yes, Crystal Bridges is here, but Crystal Bridges is connected to Amazium, which is up on the corner through programs we do together, or to the Walton Arts Center, which is in Fayetteville, through other programs that we do. When they see us bring in exhibitions from the Museum of Modern Art in New York or create an exhibition on our own and then send it out into the world, that's a network of connections that sort of, I would say, mirrors the bigger thing that happens in life, which is you meet and connect with people all the time. And those connections make you better. Working with students is so important. We want them to fall in love with this place during that time of life when everything is possible. And we want teachers to love it because they'll be the ones whose passion for, say, Crystal Bridges will get their students excited about coming back. It is about paying it forward. It's about looking at the person who's behind you coming up next in line and helping them get where they need to go. But it really is about being more connected than you could possibly be on your own. I love that you say a rising tide to lift up all the boats. Yes. And I kind of want to use that as our final question. And thinking about this idea of the rising tide and how sometimes the perceptions of the rising tide are negative. Mm. And I was I was watching recently, I don't know if you're a Tina Fey fan. Mm, definitely. But there's this great segment that was on Weekend Update several years ago during Hillary's first presidential run. Yes. And so Faye embraces this opinion 
that Hillary was perceived very negatively. And she says, you know what? I fit that stereotype too. And that just means that we get stuff done. Right. So I wonder in your role, do you think that owning and embracing this stereotype can redefine what it means to be a woman in leadership and power? It's a great question. I think owning it is the first step to rewriting it. One of the things I really love about the idea that I'm sort of in charge of that stereotype and how it's seen is you can embrace it just as she talks about and you can also rewrite it. That's where the rising tide lifting up all the boats makes all the difference because if it was just me personally getting better, getting more, then yeah, I'm right in that stereotype. But if I'm saying hop on, let's do this together, suddenly I'm no longer a threat. I'll do my thing, you'll have your thing, but we're all going to get better in the process. It's much harder to uh, have choice words for someone with that attitude than it is for someone who seems to be in it just for themselves. And indeed, I would also say most people who get that uh, stereotype given to them usually are not in it all for themselves, but they're at a distance. They're a little further away from you, and you can't quite see how what they're doing is better for you too. The kind of work that we're in, we have the fortunate circumstance of being right there on the ground with the people we want to affect and and connect with. That's one of the difficulties of an office like the presidency, right? They can't be with everybody every day, even though what they're doing is for the greater good. So stereotypes get applied very easily. But in the world that you and I inhabit, I find it easier to have the conversations because what I can say is, let's do this together And yes, it's going to be tough. And I'm going to be hard on you at moments, but you're going to be hard on me too. And therefore, we're going to lift all the boats. The the scale, I think, is the difference. I think when it's so big that you're not personally connected, it's real easy to be called names by folks that don't want to believe you and don't want to see it. But when you are personally connected, when people see you for who you are, it's way easier. And that may be why... I choose to work here in this place where it's a smaller town, but the museum has a very big impact and a national profile. I, I like the personal nature of being connected to the people that live here and work here. I like knowing them. I like seeing them in the grocery store and at the farmer's market and then standing up and getting in front of them for a gallery talk and discovering something new. That personal connection is important enough to me that this is where I choose to be. And that hopefully will be the case for a very long time. But I think stereotypes go away when you bring the scale down to life size instead of bigger than life size. I think that is a beautiful place to end our conversation today. And I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of this conversation and talking about your experiences, your path, and your current role. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.